Chapter 8. The news that the fifth Earl had had three illegitimate children at the age of 81 was announced in the notebook with a truly aristocratic understatement. No boasting, no self-congratulation. Just a brief, quiet statement, sandwiched between the record of a conversation with the Duke of Wellington and a note on the music of Mozart. 120 years after the event, Dr. Obispo, who was not an English gentleman, exulted noisily, as though the achievement had been his own. Three of them, he shouted in his proletarian enthusiasm. Three. What do you think of that? Brought up in the same tradition as the fifth earl, Jeremy thought that it wasn't bad and went on reading. In 1820, the earl had been ill again, but not severely, and a three months course of raw carps entrails had restored him to his normal health. The health, as he put it, of a man in the flower of his age. A year later, for the first time in a quarter of a century, he visited his nephew and niece, and was delighted to find that Caroline had become a shrew, and that John was already bald and asthmatic, and that their eldest daughter was so monstrously fat that nobody would marry her. <laughs> On the news of the death of Bonaparte, he had written philosophically that a man must be a great fool if he could not satisfy his desire for glory, power, and excitement, except by undergoing the hardships of war and the tedium of civil government. The language of polite conversation, he concluded, reveals with a sufficient clarity that such exploits as those of Alexander and Bonaparte have their peaceful and domestic equivalents. We speak of amorous adventures, of the conquest of a desired female, and the possession of her person. For the man of sense, such tropes are eloquent indeed. Considering their significance, he perceives that war and the pursuit of empire are wrong because foolish, foolish, because unnecessary and unnecessary, because the satisfactions derivable from victory and dominion may be obtained with vastly less trouble, pain, and ennui behind the silken curtains of the Duchess's alcove or on the straw pallet of the dairymaid. And if at any time such simple pleasure should prove insipid, if... Like the antique hero, he should find himself crying for new worlds to conquer, then by the offer of a supplementary guinea, or in very many instances, as I have found, gratuitously, by the mere elicitation of a latent desire for humiliation and even pain, a man may enjoy the privileges of using the birch, the manacles, the cage, and any such other emblems of absolute power as the fancy of the conqueror may suggest, and the hired patience of the conquered will tolerate or her consenting taste approve." I recall a remark by Dr. Johnson to the effect that a man is seldom more innocently employed than when making money. Making love is an even more innocent employment than making money. If Bonaparte had had the wisdom to vent his desire for domination in the saloons and bedchambers of his native Corsica, he would have expired in freedom among his own people, and many hundreds of thousands of men, now dead or maimed or blind, would be alive and enjoying the use of their faculties. True. They would doubtless be employing their eyes, limbs, and lives as foolishly and malignantly as those whom Bonaparte did, did not murder are employing them today. But though a superior being might applaud the one-time emperor for having removed so great a quantity of vermin from the earth, the vermin themselves will always be of another opinion. As a mere, as a mere man of sense and not a superior being, I am on the side of the vermin. Have you ever noticed, said Dr. Abisbo reflectively, the way even the most hard-boiled people always try to make out that they're really good? Even this old buzzard. You'd think he wouldn't care how he rated, so long as he got his fun. But no, he has to write a long screed proving what a much better man he is than Napoleon, which of course he is by any reasonable standard. But you wouldn't expect him to go out of his way to say so. Well, nobody else was likely to say so, Jeremy put in. So he had to do it himself, Dr. Abisbo concluded, which just proves my point. Iagos don't exist. People will do everything Iago did, but they'll never say they're villains. They'll construct a beautiful verbal world in which all their villainies are right and reasonable. I'd hoped that old Carp Guts would be an exception, but he isn't. It's really rather a disappointment. 
Jeremy giggled with a certain patronizing disdain. You'd have liked him to do the Don Juan in Hell act, the comme héros courbe sur sa rapière. You're more romantic than I thought. He turned back to the notebook and, after a pause, announced that in 1823, the fifth earl had spent some hours with Coleridge and found his conversations deep, but singularly muddy. Characteristics, he, added, he had added, which are admirable in fish ponds, but deplorable in rational discourse, which should be pellucid and always shallow enough for a man to wade through without risk of drowning himself in an abyss of nonsense. Jeremy beamed with pleasure. Coleridge was not a favorite of his. When I think of the rot, people are still talking about the rubbish that old dope addict wrote. Dr. Obisbo cut him short. Let's hear some more about the Earl, he said. Jeremy returned to the notebook. In 1824, the old gentleman was lamenting the passage of the bill which assimilated the transportation of slaves to piracy and so made the trade a capital offense. Henceforward, he would be, he would be a matter of eight or nine thousand a year the poorer. But he consoled himself by thinking of Horace living in philosophic tranquility on his Sabine farm. In 1826, he was deriving his keenest pleasure from a reperusal of Theocritus, Theocritus and the company of a young female called Kate, whom he had made his housekeeper. In the same year, despite the curtailment of his income, he had been unable to resist the temptation of purchasing an exquisite Assumption of the Virgin by Murillo. 1827 had been a year of financial reverses. Reverses that were connected, apparently, with the death, following an abortion, of a very young maid employed by the housekeeper as her personal attendant. The entry in the notebook was brief and obscure, but it seemed to imply that the girl's parents had had to be paid a very substantial sum. A little later, he was unwell again and wrote a long and minute description of the successive stages of decay in the human corpse, with special reference to the eyes and lips. A short course of triturated carp or sport restored him to a more cheerful frame of mind, and in 1828, he made a voyage to Athens, Constantinople, and Egypt. In 1831, he was in negotiations for the purchase of a house near Farnham. That must be Selford, Jeremy put in, the house where these things came from. He indicated the 27 packing cases, where the two old ladies are living. He continued his reading. The house is old, dark, and inconvenient but stands in sufficient extensive grounds upon an eminence above the river Way, whose southern bank at this point rises almost perpendicularly in a cliff of yellow sandstone to the height of perhaps 120 feet. The stone is soft and easily worked, a circumstance which accounts for the existence beneath the house of very extensive cellars which were dug, it would seem, about a century ago, when the vaults were used for the storage of smuggled spirits and other goods on their way from the coasts of Hampshire and Sussex to the metropolis. To allay the fears of his wife, who dreads to lose a child in their subterranean meanders. The farmer who now owns the house has walled off the greater part of his cellarage. But even that which remains pr presents the appearance of a veritable catacomb. In vaults such as these, a man could be assured of all the privacy required for the satisfaction of even the most eccentric tastes. Ooh. Jeremy looked up over the top of his book. That sounds a bit sinister, don't you think? Dr. Obisbo shrugged his shoulders. Nobody can have enough privacy, he said emphatically. When I think of all the trouble I've had for one of some nice sellers like the ones you've been reading about. He left the sentence unfinished, and a shadow crossed his face. He was thinking that he couldn't go on giving Joe Stoit those Nembutal capsules indefinitely. Damn him. Well, he buys the house, said Jeremy, who had been reading to himself. And he has repairs and additions made in the Gothic manner. And an apartment is fitted up in the cellars, 45 feet underground, and at the end of a long passage. And to his delight, he finds that there's a subterranean well, and another shaft that goes to a great depth and can be used as a privy. And the place is perfectly dry, and it has ample supply of air, and... But what does he do down there? Dr. Abusebo asked impatiently. How should I know? Jeremy answered. He ran his eyes down the page. 
At the moment, he went on, the old boy is making a speech to the House of Lords in favor of the reform bill. In favor of it, said Obispo in surprise. In the first days of the French Revolution, Jeremy read out, I infuriated the adherents of every political party by saying, The Bastille has fallen. Long live the Bastille. Forty-three years have elapsed since the occurrence of that singularly futile event, and the correctness of my prognostications has been demonstrated by the rise of new tyrannies and the restoration of old ones. It is therefore with perfect confidence that I now say, privilege is dead, long live privilege. The masses of mankind are incapable of emancipation and too inept to direct their own destinies. Government must always be led by tyrants or oligarchs. My opinion of the peerage and the landed gentry is exceedingly low, but their own opinion of themselves must be even lower than mine. They believe that the ballot will rob them of their power and privileges, whereas I am sure that, by the exercise of even such little prudence and cunning as parsimonious nature has endowed them with, they can with ease maintain themselves in their present preeminence. This being so, let the rabble amuse itself by voting. An election is no more than a gratuitous punch-and-judy show, offered by the rulers in order to distract the attention of the ruled. How he'd have enjoyed a modern communist or fascist election, said Dr. Abisbo. By the way, how old was he when he made this speech? Let me see, Jeremy paused for a moment to make the calculation, then answered, 94. 94, Dr. Abisbo repeated. Well, if it weren't those fish guts, I don't know what it was. Jeremy turned back to the notebook. At the beginning of 1833, he sees his nephew and niece again on the occasion of Caroline's 65th birthday. Caroline now wears a red wig. Her eldest daughter is dead of cancer. The younger is unhappy with her husband and is addicted to piety. The son, who is now a colonel, has gambling debts which he expects his parents to pay. Altogether, as the Earl remarks, a most enjoyable evening. Nothing about those cellars, Dr. Abisbo complained. No, but his housekeeper Kate has been ill, and he's giving her the carp diet. Dr. Obispo showed a renewal of interest. And what happens, he asked. Jeremy shook his head. The next entry is about Milton. Milton, exclaimed Dr. Obispo in a tone of indignant disgust. He says that Milton's writings prove that religion depends for its existence upon the picturesque use of intemperate language. He may be right, said Dr. Obispo irritably. But what I want to know is what happened to that housekeeper. She's evidently alive, said Jeremy, because here's a little note in which he complains about the tediousness of too much female devotion. Tedious, Dr. Obispo repeated. That's putting it mildly. I've known women who were like flypaper. Ooh. Ooh. She doesn't seem to have objected to an occasional infidelity. There's a reference here to a young mulatto girl. He paused and smiling. Delicious creature, he said. She combines the brutish imbecility of the Hottentot with the malice and cupidity of the European. Oof. After which the old gentleman goes out to dinner at Farnham Castle with the Bishop of Winchester and find his claret poor, his port execrable, <laughs> and his intellectual powers beneath contempt. Nothing about Kate's health, Dr. Abisbo persisted. Why should he talk about it? He takes it for granted. I had hoped he was a man of science, said Dr. Abisbo almost plaintively. Jeremy laughed. You must have very odd ideas about fifth earls and eleventh barons. Why on earth should they be men of science? Dr. Abisbo was unable to answer. There was a silence while Jeremy started a new page. Well, I'm damned, he broke out. He's been reading James Mill's Analysis of the Human Mind at 95. I think that's even more remarkable than having a rejuvenated housekeeper and a mulatto. The common fool is merely stupid and ignorant. To be a great fool, a man must have much learning and high abilities. To the everlasting credit of Mr. Bentham and his lieutenants, it must be said that their folly has always been upon the grandest scale. Mr. Mill's analysis is a veritable coliseum of silliness. <laughs> and the next note is about the Marquis de Sade. By the way, Jeremy interpolated, looking up at Dr. Abisbo, when are you going to return my books? 
Dr. Obispo shrugged his shoulders. Whenever you like, he answered. I'm through with them. Jeremy tried not to show his delight, and with a cough, returned to the notebook. The Marquis de Sade, he read aloud, was a man of powerful genius, unhappily deranged. In my opinion, an author would achieve perfection if he, if he combined the qualities of the Marquis with those of Bishop, Butler, and Stern. Jeremy paused. The Marquis, Bishop, Butler, and Stern, he repeated slowly. My word, you'd have a pretty remarkable book. He went on reading. October 1833. To degrade oneself is pleasurable in proportion to the height of the worldly and intellectual eminence from which one descends and to which one returns when the act of degradation is concluded. That's pretty good, he commented, thinking of the Trojan women and alternate Friday afternoons in Maida Vale. Yeah, that's pretty good. Let me see, where are we? Oh, yes. The Christians talk much of pain, but nothing of what they but nothing of what they say is to the point. For the most remarkable characteristics of pain are these, the disproportion between the enormity of physical suffering and its often trifling causes, and the manner in which, by annihilating every faculty and reducing the body to helplessness, it defeats the object for which it was apparently devised by nature, viz., to warn the sufferer of the approach of danger, whether from within or without. In relation to pain, that empty world, infinity, comes near to having a meaning, this is not the case with pleasure, for pleasure is strictly finite, and any attempt to extend its boundaries results in its transformation into pain. For this reason, the infliction of pleasure can never be so delightful to the inspiring mind as the infliction of pain. To give a finite quality of pleasure is merely a human act. The infliction of the infinity we call pain is truly godlike and divine. The old bastard's going mystical in his old age, Dr. Abbey's book complains. Almost reminds me of Mr. Proctor. He lit a cigarette. There was silence. Listen to this, Jeremy suddenly cried in a tone of excitement. March, 1834. By the criminal negligence of Kate, Priscilla has been allowed to escape from the subterranean place of confinement. Bearing as she does upon her person the evidence that she has been for some weeks past the subject of my investigations, she holds in her hands my reputation and perhaps even my liberty and life. I suppose this is what you were talking about before we started reading, said Dr. Abisbo. The final scandal. What happened? Well, I suppose the girl must have told her story, Jeremy answered without looking up from the page before him. Otherwise, how do you account for the presence of this hostile rabble he suddenly started talking about? The humanity of men and women is inversely proportional to their numbers. A crowd is no more human than an avalanche or a whirlwind. A rabble of men and women stands lower in the scale of moral and intellectual being than a herd of swine or of jackals. Dr. Obisbo threw back his head and uttered a peal of his surprisingly loud, metallic laughter. That's exquisite, he said. Exquisite. You couldn't have a better example of typically human behavior. Homo conducting himself like a sub-homo, and, and then being sapiens in order to prove that he's really super-homo. He rubbed his hands together. This is really heavenly, he said, then added. Let's hear what happens now. Well, as far as I can make out, said Jeremy, they have to send a company of militia from Guildford to protect the house from the rabble, and a magistrate has issued a warrant for his arrest, but they're not doing anything for the time being on account of his age and position and the scandal of a public trial. Oh, and now they've sent for John and Caroline, which makes the old gentleman wildly angry, but he's helpless. So they arrive at Salford, Caroline in her orange wig, and John at 72, looking at least 20 years older than I who was already 24 when my brother, then scarcely of age, had the imprudence to marry an attorney's daughter and the, and the richly merited misfortune to beget this attorney's grandson, whom I have always treated with the contempt which his low origin and feeble intellect deserve, but to whom the negligence of a strumpet has now given the power to impose his will upon me. One of those delightful family reunions, said Dr. Abisbo. 
but I suppose he doesn't give us any of the details. Jeremy shook his head. No details, he said, just an outline of the negotiations. On March the 17th, they tell him he, that he can avoid prosecution if he, makes, if he makes over his unentailed property by deed of gift, assigns them the revenues of the entailed estates, and consents to enter a private asylum. Pretty stiff conditions. Which he refuses, Jeremy continued, on the morning of the 18th. Good for him. Private madhouses, Jeremy read out, are private prisons in which, uncontrolled by parliament or judiciary, subject to no inspection by the police, and closed even to the, to the humanitarian visitations of philanthropists, hired torturers and jailers execute the dark designs of family vengeance and personal spite. Dr. Abisbo clapped his hands with delight. There's another beautiful human touch, he cried. Those humanitarian visitations of philanthropists, he laughed aloud, and hired torturers. It's like a speech by one of the founding fathers. Magnificent. And then one thinks of those slave ships and little Miss Priscilla. It's almost as good as Field Marshal Garing denouncing unkindness to animals. Hired torturers and jailers, he repeated with relish, as though the phrase were a delicious sweetmeat, slowly melting upon the palate. What's the next move, he asked. They tell him he'll be tried, condemned, and transported. To which he answers that he prefers transportation to a private asylum. At this, it was evident that my precious nephew and niece were nonplussed. They swore that my treatment in the madhouse should be humane. I answered that I would not accept their word. John talked of his honor. I said, an attorney's honor, no doubt, and spoke of the manner in which a lawyer sells his convictions for a fee. They then implored me for the good name of the family to accept their offers. I answered that the good name of the family was indifferent to me, but that I had no desire to undergo the humiliations of a public trial or the pains and discomforts of transportation. I was ready, I said, to accept any reasonable alternative to trial and transportation, but I would regard no alternative as reasonable which did not in some sort guarantee my proper treatment at their hands. Their word of honor I did not regard as such a guarantee, nor could I accept to be placed in an institution where I should be entrusted to the care of doctors and keepers in the pay of those whose interest it was that I should perish with all possible celerity. I was therefore refused, I therefore refused to subscribe to any arrangement which left me at their mercy without placing them to a corresponding extent at mine. The principles of diplomacy in a nutshell, said Dr. Abispo, if only Chamberlain had understood them a little better before he went to Munich. Not that it would have made much of a difference in the long run, he added, because after all, it doesn't really matter what the politicians do. Nationalism will always produce at least one more each generation. It has done in the past, and I suppose we can rely on it to do the same in the future. But how does the old gentleman propose to put his principles into practice? He's at their mercy, all right. How is he going to put them at his? I don't know yet, Jeremy answered from the depths of the recorded past. He's gone off on one of his philosophizing, philosophizing jaunts again. <laughs> now, said Dr. Abisbo in astonishment, when he's got a warrant out against him? There was a time, Jeremy read, when I believed that all the efforts of humanity were directed towards a point located approximately at the center of the female person. Today, I am inclined to think that vanity and avarice play a more considerable part even than lust in shaping the course of men's actions and determining the nature of their thoughts, and so on. Where the devil does he get back to the point again? Perhaps he never does. It would be just like him. No, here's something. March 20th. Today, Robert Parsons, my factor, returned from London bringing with him in the coach three strong boxes containing gold coin and banknotes to the value of 218,000 pounds, the product of the sale of my securities and such jewels, plate, and works of art as it was possible to dispose of at such short notice and for cash. With more time, I could have realized at least 350,000 pounds. 
This loss I can bear philosophically, for the sum I have in hand is amply sufficient for my purposes. What purpose? asked Dr. Abisbo. And Jeremy did not answer for a little while. When he, then he shook his head in bewilderment. What on earth is happening now? he said. Listen to this. My funeral would be conducted with all the pomp befitting my exalted rank and the eminence of my virtues. John and Caroline were miserly and ungrateful enough to object to the expense, but I have insisted that my obsequies should not co should co shall cost not a penny less than four thousand pounds. My only regret is that I shall be unable to leave my subterranean retreat to see the pageantry of woe and to study the expression of grief upon the withered faces of the new earl and his countess. Tonight I shall go down with Kate to our quarters in the cellarage, and tomorrow morning the world will hear the news of my death. The body of an aged pauper has already been conveyed hither in secret from Halsmere, and will take my place in the coffin. After the interment, the new earl and countess will proceed at once to Gunnister, where they will take up their residence, leaving this house untenanted except for Parsons, who will serve as caretaker and provide for our material wants. The golden banknotes brought by Parsons from London are already bestowed in a subterranean hiding place known only to myself, and it has been arranged that every 1st of June, so long as I live, 5,000 pounds in cash shall be handed over by myself to John or to Caroline, or in the event of their predeceasing me to their heir, or to some duly authorized representative of the family. And by this arrangement, I flatter myself. I have placed them hardly less in my power than I would have been placed in theirs. The betrayal of my secret would cost them the title and estates, and would expose them, moreover, to a prosecution for perjury. Nor is this all. My life is worth to them 5,000 pounds a year in cash, and they know that, at the first suspicion of foul play, I should at once destroy the sources of their supply. I rely upon cupidity and fear to fortify their honor and to fill the place left vacant by the affection they most certainly do not feel. Whew. And that's all, said Jeremy, looking up, and there's nothing else. Just two more blank pages, and that's the end of the book. Not another word of writing. There was a long silence. Once more, Dr. Abisbo got up and began to walk about the room. And nobody knows how long the old buzzard lived on, he said. Jeremy shook his head. Not outside the family. Perhaps those two old ladies... Dr. Obisbo halted in front of him and banged the table with his fist. I'm taking the next boat to England, he announced dramatically. Chapter 9 Today, even the children's hospital brought Mr. Stoit no consolations. The nurses had welcomed him with their friendliest smiles. The young house physician encountered in the corridor was flatteringly deferential. The convalescents shouted, Uncle Joe, with all their customary enthusiasm, and as he paused beside their beds... The faces of the sick were momentarily, momentarily illuminated with pleasure. His gifts of toys were received as usual, sometimes with noisy rapture, sometimes, more touchingly, in the silence of a happiness speechless with amazement and incredulity. On his round of the various wars, he saw, as on other days, the pitiful succession of small bodies distorted by scrofula and paralysis, of small, emaciated faces resigned to suffering, of little angels dying and martyred innocence, and snub-faced imps of, mi of mischief tortured into a reluctant stillness. Ordinarily, it all made him feel good, <laughs> like he wanted to cry, but at the same time, like he wanted to shout and be proud. Proud of just being human, because these kids were human, and you'd never seen anything so brave as they were, and proud that he had done this thing for them, given them the finest hospital in the state, and all the best that money could buy. But today his visit brought none of the customary reactions. He had no impulsion either to cry or to shout. He felt neither pride, nor the anguish of sympathy, nor the exquisite happiness that resulted from their combination. He felt nothing, nothing except for the dull, gnawing misery 
which had been with him all that day, at the Pantheon with Clancy in his downtown office. Driving up from the city, he looked forward to his visit to the hospital as an asthma patient might look forward to a dose of adrenaline or an opium smoker to a long postponed pipe. But the look-for relief had not come. The kids had let him down. Taking his cue from what had happened at the end of previous visits, the porter smiled at Mr. Stoyt as he left the hospital and said something about it being the finest bunch of great little kids he ever knew. Mr. Stoyt looked at him blankly, nodded without speaking, and passed on. The porter watched him go. Jeepers creepers, he said to himself, remembering the expression on Mr. Stoyt's face. Mr. Stoyt drove back to the castle, feeling as unhappy as he had felt when he left in the morning. He went up with the Vermeer to the 14th floor. Virginia was not in her boudoir. He went down to the 10th, but she was not in the billiard room. He dropped to the 2nd, but she was being neither manicured nor massaged. In a sudden access of suspicion, he descended to the sub-sub-basement and almost ran to see if she were in the laboratory with Pete. The laboratory was empty. A mouse squeaked in its cage, and behind the glass of the aquarium, one of the aged carp glided slowly from shadow into light, and from light once more into green shadow. Mr. Stoyt hurried back to the elevator, shut himself in with the Dutchman's dream of everyday life mysteriously raised to the pitch of mathematical perfection, and pressed the topmost of the 23 buttons. Arrived at his destination, Mr. Stoyt slid back the gate of the elevator and looked out through the glass panel on the second door. The water of the swimming pool was perfectly still. Between the battlements, the mountains had taken on their evening richness of golden light and indigo shadow. The sky was cloudless and transparently blue. A tray with bottles and glasses had been set on the iron table at the further side of the pool, and behind the table stood one of the low couches on which Mr. Stoyt was accustomed to taking his sun baths. Virginia was lying on this couch as though anesthetized. Her lips parted, her eyes closed, one arm dropped limply, and its palm lying upwards on the floor, like a flower carelessly thrown aside and forgotten. Half concealed by the table, Dr. Obisbo, the Claude Bernard of his subject, was looking down into her face with an expression of slightly amused scientific curiosity. In, his, in its first irrepressible uprush, Mr. Stoyt's fury came nearer to defeating its own homicidal object. With a great effort, he checked the impulse to shout, to charge headlong out of the elevator, waving his fists and foaming at the mouth. Trembling under the internal pressure of pent-up rage and hatred, he groped in the pocket of his jacket. Except for a child's rattle and two packets of chewing gum left over from his distribution of gifts at the hospital, it was empty. For the first time in months, he had forgotten his automatic. For a few seconds, Mr. Stoyt stood hesitating, undecided what to do. Should he rush out, as he had first been moved to do, and kill the man with his bare hands, or should he go down and fetch his gun? In the end, he decided to get the gun. He pressed the button, and the lift dropped silently down its shaft. Unseeing, Mr. Stoyt glanced at the Vermeer, and from her universe of perfected geometrical beauty, the young lady in blue satin turned her head from the open harpsichord and looked out, past the draped curtain, over the black and white tessellated floor, out through the window of the picture frame, into that other universe in which Mr. Stoyt and his fellow creatures had their ugly and untidy being. Mr. Stoyt ran to his bedroom, opened the drawer in which his handkerchiefs were kept, and rummaged furiously among the silks and cambrics and found nothing. Then he remembered. Yesterday morning he had worn no jacket. The gun had been in his hip pocket. Then Peterson had come to give him his Swedish exercises. But a gun in the hip pocket was uncomfortable if you did things on your back on the floor. He had taken it out and put it away in the writing desk in his study. Mr. Stoyt ran back to the elevator, went down four floors, and ran to the study. The gun was in the top left-hand drawer of the writing table. He remembered exactly. 
the top left-hand drawer of the writing table was locked. So were all the other drawers. God damn that old bitch, Mr. Stoit shouted as he tugged at the handles. Thoughtful and conscientious in every detail, Miss Grogram, his secretary, always locked up everything before she went home. Still cursing Mrs. Grogram, whom he hated at the moment almost as bitterly as he hated that swine there on the roof, Mr. Stoit hurried back to the elevator. The gate was locked. During his absence in the study, somebody must have pressed the recall button on some other floor. Through the closed door, he could hear the faint hum of the machinery. The elevator was in use. God only, know how only knew how long he would have to wait. Mr. Stoit let out an inarticulate bellow, rushed along the corridor, turned to the right, opened a swing door, turned to the right again, and was at the gate of the service lift. He seized the handle and pulled. It was locked. He pressed the recall button. Nothing happened. The service elevator was also in use. Mr. Stoit ran back along the corridor, through the swing door, then through another swing door, sp spiraled around a central well that went down 200 feet into the depths of the cellars. The staircase mounted and descended. Mr. Stoit started to climb. Breathless after only two floors, he ran back to the elevators. The service elevator was still in use, but the other responded to the call of the button. Dropping from somewhere overhead, it came to a halt in front of him. The locked door unlocked itself. He pulled it open and stepped in. The young lady in satin still occupied her position of equilibrium in a perfectly calculated universe. The distance of her left eye from the left side of the picture was to its distance from the right side as one is to the square root of 2 minus 1, and the distance of the same eye from the bottom of the picture was equal to its distance from the left side. As for the knot of ribbons on her right shoulder, that was precisely at the corner of an imaginary square with the sides equal to the longer of the two golden sections into which the base of the picture was divisible. A deep fold in the satin skirt indicated the position of the right side of the square, and the lid of the harpsichord marked the top. The tapestry in the upper right-hand corner stretched exactly one-third of the way across the picture and had its lower edge at a height equal to the base. Pushed forward by the browns and dusky ochres of the background, the blue satin encountered the black and white marble slabs of the floor and was pushed back to be held suspended in mid-picture space, like a piece of steel between two magnets of opposite sign. Within the frame, nothing could have been different. The stillness of that world was not the mere immobility of old paint and canvas. It was also the spirited repose of consummated perfection. The old bitch, Mr. Stoic kept growling to himself, and then, turning in memory from his secretary to Dr. Obispo, the swine. And the elevator came to a stop. Mr. Stoit darted out and hurried along the corridor to Miss Grogram's empty office. He thought he knew where she kept the keys, but it turned out that he was wrong. They were somewhere else. But where? 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 Frustration churned up his rage into a foam of frenzy. He opened drawers and flung their contents on the floor. He scattered the neatly filed papers around the room. He overturned the dictaphone. He even went to the trouble of emptying the bookshelves and upsetting the potted cyclamen and the bowl of Japanese goldfish which Miss Grogram kept on the windowsill. Red scales flashed among the broken glass and the reference books. One gauzy tail was black with spilled ink. Mr. Stoy picked up a bottle of glue and, with all his might, threw it down among the dying fish. Bitch, he shouted. Bitch! Then suddenly he saw the keys, hanging in a neat little bunch on a hook near the mantelpiece, where, he suddenly remembered, he had seen them a thousand times before. Bitch! he shouted with redoubled fury as he seized them. He hurried towards the door, pausing only to push the typewriter off its table. It fell with a crash into the chaos of torn paper and glue and goldfish. That would serve the old bitch right, Mr. Stoit reflected with a kind of maniacal glee as he ran towards the elevator. Chapter 10 Barcelona had fallen, but even if it had not fallen, even if it had never been besieged, then what? 
Like every other community, Barcelona was part machine, part subhuman organism, part nightmare huge projection and embodiment of men's passions and insanities. Their avarice, their pride, their lust for power, their obsession with meaningless words, their worship of lunatic ideals. Captured or uncaptured, every city and nation has its being on the plane of the absence of God has its being on the plane of the absence of God, and is therefore foredoomed to the perpetual self-stultification, to endlessly reiterated attempts at self-destruction. Barcelona had fallen, but even the prosperity of human societies is a continual process of gradual or catastrophic falling. Those who build up the structures of civilization are the same as those who undermine the structures of civilization. Men are their own termites, and must remain their own termites for just so long as they persist in being only men. The towers rise, the palaces, the temples, the dwellings, the workshops, but the heart of every beam is gnawed to dust even as it is laid. The joists are riddled, the floor is eaten away under the feet. What poetry, what statues, but on the brink of the Peloponnesian War. And now the Vatican is painted, just in time for the sack of Rome. And the Eureka is composed, but for a hero who turns out to be just another bandit. And the nature of the atom is elucidated by the same physicist as volunteer in wartime to improve the arts of murder. On the plane of the absence of God, men can do nothing else except destroy what they have built. Destroy even while they build. Build with the elements of destruction. Madness consists in not recognizing the facts, in making wishes the fathers of thoughts, in conceiving things to be other than they really are in trying to realize desired ends by means which countless previous experiments have shown to be inappropriate. Madness consists, for example, in thinking of oneself as a soul, a coherent and enduring human entity. But, between the animal below and the spirit above, there is nothing on the human level except a swarm of constellated impulses and sentiments and notions, a swarm brought together by the accidents of heredity and language, a swarm of incongruous and often contradictory thoughts and desires. Memory and the slowly changing body constitute a kind of spatio-temporal cage within which the swarm is enclosed. To talk of it as though it were a coherent and enduring soul is madness. On the strictly human level, there is no such thing as a soul. Though constellations, feeling arrangements, desire patterns, each of these is strictly conditioned by the nature of its fortuitous origin. Our souls are so little us that we cannot even form the remotest conception how we should react to the universe if we were ignorant of language in general, or even of our own particular language. The nature of our souls and of the world they inhabit would be entirely different from what it is if we had never learned to talk, or if we had learned to talk Eskimo instead of English. Madness consists, among other things, in imagining that our soul exists apart from the language our nurses happen to have taught us. Every psychological pattern is determined, and within the cage of flesh and memory, the total swarm of such patterns is no more free than any of its members. To talk of freedom and connection with acts which in reality are determined is madness. On the strictly human level, no acts are free. By their insane refusal to recognize facts as they are, men and women condemn themselves to have their desires stultified and their lives distorted or extinguished. No less than the cities and nations of which they are members, men and women are forever fit, falling, forever destroying what they have built and are building. But whereas cities and nations obey the laws that come into play whenever large numbers are involved, individuals do not, or rather need not. For though in actual fact most individuals allow themselves to be subjected to these laws, they are under no necessity to do so. For they are under no necessity to remain exclusively on the human level of existence. 
it is in their power to pass from the level of the absence of God to that of God's presence. Each member of the psychological swarm is determined, and so is the conduct of the total swarm. But beyond the swarm, and yet containing and interpenetrating it, lies eternity, ready and waiting to experience itself. But if eternity is to experience itself within the temporal and spatial cage of any individual human being, the swarm we call the soul must voluntarily renounce the frenzy of its activity, must make room, as it were, for the other timeless consciousness, must be silent to render possible the emergence of profounder silence. God is completely present only in the complete absence of what we call our humanity. No iron necessity condemns the individual to the futile torment of being merely human. Even if the swarm we call the soul has, has it in its power temporarily to inhibit its insane activity, to absent itself, if only for a moment, in order that, if only for a moment, God may be present. But let eternity experience itself. Let God be sufficiently often present in the absence of human desires and feelings and preoccupations. The result will be a transformation of that life which must be lived, in the intervals, upon the human level. Even the swarm of our passions and opinions is susceptible to the beauty of eternity, and being susceptible becomes dissatisfied with its own ugliness, and being dissatisfied undertakes to change itself. Chaos gives place to order, not the arbitrary, purely human order that comes from the subordination of the swarm to some lunatic ideal, but an order that reflects the real order of the world. Bondage gives place to liberty, for choices are no longer dictated by the chance occurrences of earlier history, but are made teleologically and in the light of a direct insight into the nature of things. Violence and mere inertia give place to peace. For violence is the manic and the inertia of the depressive, phase of that cyclic insanity, which consists in regarding the ego or its social projections as real entities. Peace is the serene activity which springs from the knowledge that our souls are illusory and their creations insane, that all beings are potentially united in eternity. Compassion is an aspect of peace and a result of that same act of knowledge. Walking at sunset up the castle hill, Pete kept thinking with a kind of tranquil exultation of all the things Mr. Proctor had said to him. Barcelona had fallen. Spain, England, France, Germany, America, all were falling, falling even at such times as they seemed to be rising, destroying what they built in the very act of building. But any individual has it in his power to refrain from falling, to stop destroying himself. The solidarity with evil is optional, not compulsory. On their way out of the carpenter shop, Pete had brought himself to ask Mr. Proctor if he would tell him what he ought to do. Mr. Proctor had looked at him intently. If you want it, he had said. I mean, if you really want it. Pete had nodded without speaking. The sun had set, and now the twilight was like the embodiment of peace. The peace of God, Pete said to himself, as he looked across the plain to the distant mountains. The peace that passes all understanding. To part with such loveliness was unbearable. Entering the castle, he went straight to the elevator, recalled this cage from somewhere up aloft, shut himself up with a vermeer, and pressed the highest of the buttons. Up there, at the top of the keep, he would be at the very heart of this celestial peace. The elevator came to a halt. He opened the gates and stepped out. The swimming pool reflected a luminous tranquility. He turned his eyes from the water to the sky and from the sky to the mountains, then walked round the pool in order to look down over the battlements on the further side. Go away, a muffled voice suddenly said. Pete started violently, turned away, and saw Virginia lying in the shadow almost at his feet. Go away, the voice repeated. I hate you. I'm sorry, he stammered. I didn't know. Oh, it's you, 
she opened her eyes, and in the dim light he was able to see that she had been crying. I thought it was Sig. He went to go get a comb for my hair. She was silent for a while, then suddenly she burst out. I'm so unhappy, Pete. Unhappy? The word in her tone had utterly shattered the peace of God. In an anguish of love and anxiety, he sat down beside her on the couch. Under her bathrobe, he couldn't help noticing, she didn't seem to be wearing anything at all. Virginia covered her face and with her, hand, with her hands and began to sob. Not even Our Lady, she gasped in, in incoherency of grief. I can't even tell her. I feel so mean. Darling, he said in a voice of entreaty, as though imploring her to be happy. He began to stroke her hair. My darling. Suddenly there was a violent commotion on the further side of the pool. A crash as the elevator gates were flung back. A rush of feet. An inarticulate yell of rage. Pete turned his head and was in time to see Mr. Stoit rushing towards them, holding something in his hand, something that might almost have been an automatic pistol. He had half risen to his feet when Mr. Stoit fired. Arriving two or three minutes later with the comb for Virginia's hair, Dr. Apisbo found the old man on his knees, trying with a pocket handkerchief to staunch the blood that was still pouring out of the two wounds, one clean and small, the other cavernous, which the bullet had made as it passed through Pete's head. Crouching in the shadow of the battlements, the baby was praying, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. Amen. She repeated again and again, as fast as, as her sobs were permit, would permit her. Every now and then she would be seized and shaken by an excess of nausea, and the praying would be interrupted for a moment. Then it began again where she had left off. A sinners now and in the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Dr. Abisbo opened his mouth to make an exclamation, then closed it again, whispered, Christ, and walked quickly and silently around the pool. Before making his presence known, he took the precaution of picking up the pistol and slipping it into his pocket. One never knew. Then he called Mr. Stoit's name. The old man started and a hideous expression of terror appeared in his face. Fear gave place to relief as he turned round and saw who it was that had spoken to him. Thank God it's you, he said, then suddenly remembered that this was the man he had meant to kill. But all that had been a million years ago, a million miles away. The near, immediate, urgent fact was not the baby, not love or anger. It was fear, and this thing that lay here on the ground. You've got to save him, he said in a hoarse whisper. We can say it was an accident. I'll pay him anything he likes, anything in reason. An old reflex impelled him to add. But you've got to save him. Laboriously, he heaved himself to his feet and motioned Dr. Abisbo to his vacated place. The only movement Dr. Abisbo made was one of withdrawal. The old man was covered with blood, and he had no wish to spoil a $95 suit. Save him, he repeated. You're mad. Look at all the brain lying there on the floor. From the shadows behind him, Virginia interrupted the sobbing mutter of her prayers to scream. On the floor, she kept wailing. On the floor. Dr. Apisbo turned on her savagely. Shut up, do you hear? The screams abruptly ceased, but a few seconds later there was a sound of violent retching, then... Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. If we're going to try and save anybody, Dr. Abisbo went on, it had better be you. And believe me, he added emphatically, throwing all his weight on the left leg and using the toe of his right shoe to point at the body, you need some saving. It's either the gas chamber or San Quentin for life. But it was an accident, Mr. Stoyd began to protest with a breathless eagerness. I mean, it was all a mistake. I never wanted to shoot him. I meant to... He broke off and stood in silence, his mouth working as though he were trying to swallow some unspoken word. You meant to kill me, 
said Dr. Abisbo, completing the sentence for him and smiling as he did so, with the expression of wolfish good humor, which was characteristic of him in any situation where the joke was at all embarrassing or painful. Secure in the knowledge that the old buzzard was much too scared to be angry, and that, and that anyhow the gun was in his own pocket, he prolonged the joke by saying, Well, sententiously, that's what comes of snooping. Now in the hour of a death, amen, Virginia gabbled in the ensuing silence. Holy Mary, mother. I never meant it, Mr. Stoy reiterated. I just got mad. Guess I didn't really figure out what I was doing. Tell that to the jury, said Dr. Obisbo sarcastically. But I swear it, I didn't really know, Mr. Stoy protested. His harsh voice broke grotesquely into a squeak. His face was white with fear. The doctor shrugged his shoulders. Maybe, he said, but not knowing doesn't make any difference to that. He stood on one leg again to point an elegantly shod foot in the direction of the body. But what shall I do? Mr. Stoyt almost screamed in the anguish of his terror. Don't ask me. Mr. Stoyt initiated the gesture of laying his hands imploringly on the other's sleeve, but Dr. Abisbo quickly drew back. No, don't touch me, he said. Just look at your hands. Mr. Stoyt looked. The thick, carrot-like fingers were red. Under the horny nails, the blood was already caked and dry, like clay. God, he whispered. Oh, my God. And at the hour of death, amen, holy Mary. At the word death, the old man started as though he'd been struck with a whip. Obisbo, he began again, breathless with apprehension. Obisbo, listen here. You got to help me out of this. You got to help me, he entreated. After you did your best to do that to me? The white and tan shoes shot out again. You wouldn't let them get me, Mr. Stoit wheedled, abject in his terror. But why wouldn't I? But you can't, he almost shouted. You can't. Dr. Obizo bent down to make quite sure, in the fading light, that there was no blood on the couch. Then, pulling up his fawn-colored trousers, sat down. One gets tired of standing, he said in a pleasant conversational tone. Mr. Stoyt went on pleading. I'll make it worth your while, he said. You can have anything you care to ask for. Anything, he repeated, without any qualifying reference this time, to reason. Ah, said Dr. Obizo. Now you're talking turkey. Mother of God, Mother of the Baby, pray for us sinners now in the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Mother Mary of God, pray for us sinners now. You're talking turkey, Dr. Obispo repeated.